Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Nobody outside the Kremlin, and maybe inside the Kremlin too, knows exactly what happened over the last weekend. We do know that Yevgeny Prigozhin led something that looked like a rebellion against Vladimir Putin's government. Columns of troops and tanks turned toward the motherland, and elements of the Wagner Group made it inside 200 miles of Moscow. What did Prigozhin really want, though? And what happened to end the crisis? And is the crisis actually really over? Joining us today is Mark Katz of George Mason University. He's a longtime Russia watcher and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, in addition to his teaching duties. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can we start with just the absolute basics? Like, what's your view of what happened last weekend? (laughs) Well, it is complicated. Uh, certainly, uh, Putin uh, had promoted this fellow Prigozhin uh, as sort of an alternative to his state security services. Uh, Prigozhin, you know, built up the Wagner Group. They were able to operate um, sort of deniably, although everyone knew they were acting on behalf of Russia, whether in the Middle East or North Africa or elsewhere in Africa. And then, of course, with the war on Ukraine, uh, Wagner fighters were recruited to fight against Ukraine. And uh, Prigozhin went back to his old stomping grounds, the Russian prison system, to recruit there. And, you know, he appears to have been very effective, but at you know, tremendous cost in terms of lives lost. And, um, you know, Putin basically... He likes to promote rivals. In other words, what he wants, uh, he needs security services to keep the population in check, but he has to make sure that the security services aren't united uh, and can overthrow him. And so he promotes rivalries among them. And uh, you know, Wagner essentially was as a group that was you know, created. Uh, it wasn't a state uh, organization at all. And I think that um, you know there has been this rivalry between Prigozhin and the defense minister and chief of the general staff. Um, you know, Prigozhin's been you know criticizing them heavily. They supposedly uh, held back on weapon supplies, ammunition supplies for Prigozhin. And I, what I believe that Prigozhin was was doing was that he didn't intend to overthrow Putin at all. That what he wanted to do was to help Putin come to his senses and rid him of these bad advisors, uh, um, Shoigu and Gerasimov, and that then, you know, he and Putin together, that they would make, take care of things. Um, but I also, you know, when, when Prigozhin came out and basically 
criticized the whole uh, rationale for the war. That he said, you know, Ukraine was not a threat to Russia. They didn't need to be there. It was just these greedy generals who wanted to go to war. Maybe he thought that uh, you know Putin can use this as an excuse. Yeah, now I see the light thanks to you. But of course, Putin himself uh, is intimately associated with the war. In other words, I think for for Putin, this really is the you know, central cause of his being. He believes everything he said about Ukraine being a threat and you know needing to be denazified, etc. Uh, and therefore, um, I think that in that Prigozhin, in his own mind, wasn't there to overthrow the government. Then basically, he was you know he had to stop. It all felt like theater at the end of it, in a way. Uh, when he when he decided to turn around and you know he's talking to Lukashenko and oh, I'm going to go to Belarus, the whole thing just felt very I don't know if staged is the right word, but like a play, like a very elaborate play. Well, I think it was uh, if it was a play, it was definitely ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> Planned this in advance, uh, and it is shocking that, uh, considering how Putin uh, imprisons anyone who even slightly criticizes the war effort against Ukraine, to let someone who, uh, who marched on Moscow, seize Rostov, fired upon uh, regular Russian military forces, to let this guy uh, go off into exile in Belarus, apparently with his men as well, whoever wanted to go with him, uh, th- this is shocking that Putin would allow this to to happen. Uh, and I have a feeling that, uh, you know, it was one of these things where uh, everyone um, was 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 being a worst-case analyst. In other words, maybe Prigozhin thought that other units of the armed forces would join him on his march to Moscow. They didn't. On the other hand, no one seemed to be stomping him. Uh, and so I think that for for Putin, the idea was just, you know, get this guy out of here now. Uh, if he if he's losing his nerve, uh, this is the moment to to defuse this. Uh, but that um, it really looks bad for Putin if, you know, if this could happen. And I think that you know part of the reason why Prigozhin didn't get as much support as he did is because he's leading Wagner uh, against the regular military. Now I think the door is open for you know a regular military commander unit commander, if they tried something like this, maybe they would get a lot more support. I don't know if that would happen. I don't know. I don't think Putin knows either. I heard a really interesting comparison uh, to the uh, Yeltsin revolution saying that in the early days of the uh, that attempted coup, uh, there was the largest sick out of police and security officials of all time, that they just Nobody came to work just because they didn't want to pick a side at that point. Do you think there's something similar with the military, the way they sort of sat it out? Or um... absolutely, yeah. I think that uh, you know they. I think that you know the, the prudent thing was not to to get involved, uh, but that uh, you know in in retrospect, you know I think you know, Putin and company are going to be going over this. You know, who did what when, and that they're going to be drawing lessons as to who can be considered reliable or not. And maybe these people need to be gotten rid of. I think the problem for Putin is that uh, can he trust anyone, uh, anyone at all now uh, to replace them? I think that, uh, uh, you know, Putin, who tends to be paranoid anyway, that he really must be very nervous right now. Is there, 
sorry. sorry go ahead uh, i was just gonna say is there anyone who comes to mind for you at the moment that it is a potential rival um i mean there was a lot of i would say junk about how Prigozhin was himself a rival uh to putin in the weeks leading up to this uh rebellion if you want to call it that um is there somebody you know, it's it's really impossible to tell because the moment that anyone seems like a possibility, uh, Putin will move against that person. You know, I think that uh, if and when this this happens, it will be a, a surprise move. It will be a someone who has hitherto been a Putin loyalist, um, and um, you know, it'll just be a total surprise. Uh, there's anyone who's expressing any sort of degree of independence now uh is probably not going to be able to to uh operate in this manner how long do you think prigozhin lives after this what do you think is going to happen to him in belarus i just can't imagine that you let this stand yeah i would think uh and certainly you know lukashenko has you know claimed that you know putin has talked about killing him Uh, i would think that uh for putin uh in that he has a history of you know, killing off some of his adversaries, uh, some of his opponents, that uh, I would think that uh, Prigozhin would be very inconvenient, that uh, I would not be surprised if there's an assassination uh, attempt, uh, certainly or a successful assassination of Prigozhin at some point within, you know, the next few months. It'll be made to, or try to be made to look like some sort of accident, a lot of a lot of Putin's opponents seem to fall out of windows somehow or other. It's really quite interesting. Maybe a poisoning, um, but they'll try to, yeah, I think that um, I would not be surprised if something like this happens. So I was sort of thinking it's interesting that Prigozhin knows this, may have even participated in previous defenestrations. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, was he in such a bad situation that he just had to take this risk? I mean, what, why, why? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the unknowable things. In other words, he, I think he could have kept on going uh, toward Moscow that, that, you know, he, he may have succeeded. Uh, he may have even come to power for all that. But I, uh, you know, I, I really believe that Prigozhin in his own mind was not rebelling against Putin, that he was, uh, trying to help Putin by getting rid of the defense ministry people. And when it became clear that Putin wasn't going to go along with this narrative, then he got scared. And uh, as usual, decided that uh, protecting himself was the highest priority. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just shocked that this deal was, was arranged at all. But there we are. Well, there was what? <coughs> Pardon me, sorry. 30,000 men is our best guess. 30,000 soldiers? Something like that. It appears to be something like that. So so the issue that apparently inflamed Prigozhin was the requirement that Wagner forces sign this contract, you know, subordinating themselves to the defense ministry. Now, Prigozhin obviously did not want to do that. That would, that would uh, you know, vitiate his own authority. But I would have thought for a lot of individual Wagner fighters, Maybe it wouldn't have been such a terrible thing. In other words, you fight for Wagner, your chance of becoming a casualty is much higher than if you're with the regular forces. So maybe if you sign this contract with the regular forces, maybe 
you won't you'll, you'll be in a lesser degree of danger at least that's i think a possibility that we can't assume that all wagner fighters are necessarily going to um support Prigozhin. uh and maybe this is a way out on the other hand if if your option is you know move to sunny belarus and not fight at all <laughs> then i can understand why a lot of guys might want to go over with him that uh, uh that why be on the on the battlefield when there's this once in a lifetime opportunity to get out of it all together how independent is lukashenko uh, i mean did he volunteer to step in was he told to broker this deal what do you think his real role might have been you know certainly the portrayal of lukashenko is that he is subordinate to putin but the thing is is that uh I think he actually exercises uh, a lot of uh, autonomy uh, that uh, he, uh, he he can do a lot on his own. And I think that he saw this as an opportunity. Certainly, you know, he himself says you know, he spoke, spoke first to Putin, then to Prigozhin. Uh, both of them were willing to work with him, and that, that, that gave him the opportunity to do so. He's already talking about how Look, you know, Wagner guys will be useful in training Belarusian forces. He also seems to indicate that Wagner will be there at his own expense. In other words, that that you know, Belarus might be making some money off of this. Maybe he has. It's not clear at all whether Prigozhin is still going to be able to control Wagner forces in the Middle East and Africa, and and they're there making money uh, through providing protection. Maybe Lukashenko wants a, a portion of that. Um, and maybe it's even a degree of protection. In other words, that uh, having Wagner guys in in Belarus means that um, you know if, if Putin decides to play rough with with Belarus, it won't just be Belarusian forces that uh, we have all you know no combat experience, uh, but it'll be Wagner forces he might have to come up against. So I think for for Lukashenko, uh, this isn't um, a bad outcome at all. Does it change his role in the world? Well, I think it does. I think that uh, uh, it basically it it, it, it it there's. I think what this Ukraine war in general has done has made Russia a little bit brought it down to the level of its some of its smaller partners. In other words, just like uh, Putin is now dependent on Iran for arms supplies, dependent on North Korea. But they're now in a position to ask more of Russia than they might have otherwise. I think similarly with Lukashenko. He's, he's done a big favor for Putin. So what Putin has wanted now, I think that uh, there will be payback. One issue I think that people haven't focused on is that supposedly these Russian tactical nuclear weapons have been deployed to Belarus. question I have is, who ultimately controls these? Now, presumably, they're coming, they come with their you know, Russian minders, but obviously, there aren't going to be very many of these. Uh, can Lukashenko basically seize control of these tactical nuclear weapons at some point or under certain circumstances? In other words, that uh, I don't know why Putin went to the trouble to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, maybe just for the for the theater of it, that somehow. This would get the West's attention. But I think that this is something else that also gives uh, Lukashenko 
um, more autonomy, especially autonomy via Russia. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a, uh, we, we'll, we'll see how big it is, but you have a, a mercenary army um, that almost got to Moscow in a country with some tactical nukes deployed and a friendly government uh, right there on that border with Ukraine, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it, it shuffles things in a very uh, surreal and unpleasant way, I think. Um, yeah, and I think already we're seeing that there are, there are some Western observers who, who are indicating that, you know, now we really kind of need to work with Lukashenko. In other words, that he, um, he he's more of an independent factor. You know, it's one, one way to look at it is that he's more of a danger. Certainly the Baltic states are seeing it that way, Lithuania in particular. But I think there are others who are going to think that maybe uh, there's a chance to, you know, e- even if we, if we can distance him from, Putin to some extent uh, that that that's good enough to to try for, and I'm I'm sure Lukashenko will have every uh, incentive to try to make everyone, whether it's uh, it's Putin, whether it's Western governments, whether it's the Chinese government, think that um, you know it, it's in their interests to to work with uh, with Lukashenko uh, more than anything else. How, how do you think Russia losing? A portion of Wagner affects its war in Ukraine. It, it sure doesn't help. Now you know there's there's you know been different estimates as to exactly how many Wagner forces were fighting in Ukraine. I think you know, there were estimates like up to thirty thousand, even fifty thousand. There are some who say, well, really effectively it was like eight thousand. Whatever it is, um, if these guys aren't going to be joining the Russian military, that means that there are fewer uh, uh, people for Moscow to rely on. And the danger is that, well, you know, if the Wagner fighters can, you know, put up a fuss and leave the battlefield and go to Belarus, well, why not regular soldiers? Can they do the same thing as well? So I think that Wagner leaving the battlefield where it was uh, undertaking, you know, a, a big mission no longer doing this. It puts pressure, more pressure on the Russian military. And the question is, um, just how long uh, will will these individual ordinary soldiers, um, are they going to go along with this, especially now that they've seen it in, an example of successful uh, defection? Yeah, so, they, nobody, as far as we know, uh, on the Wagner side... There were very few casualties, or almost none, uh, and they all got to they they all they, they took a, a they took two major Russian cities, right? They took Rostov and um, another one, and then they they got to leave with seemingly no repercussions, except that you have to live yeah. in Belarus, <laughs> which is not at war. You know, which is not at war. You don't have to fight anymore. So I I would think that. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some generals who feel, well, you know, maybe I'd have a better chance than Prigozhin. And uh, if one has the possibility of also, you know, if you don't work, but you can still escape, well, then the you know, the, the cost benefits <laughs> of rebelling definitely are more in favor of rebelling. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, it's likely or that... Um, Others would uh, Putin would treat others in the same way, but I, I do think that 
this episode has opened the door uh, to someone in, in the security services. And it'll have to be someone in the security services who basically agrees with Kurgosian's argument. We don't need to be in Ukraine. It's not really a threat to us. But continuing this war is a threat both to Russia and to the Russian armed forces. In other words, that the longer this go- goes on, the more um, uh, men are, are chewed up in the meat grinder, that this is ultimately going to hurt the Russian army more than anything else. And we need to put a stop to it. There's an interesting quote of, that I saw. Uh, actually, it was Mark Galliotti who was talking about, if you know Mark at all, he's been on the show a bunch. Um, he was talking about uh, Putin and some of the other players as not exactly being capable of three-dimensional chess, right? That they are not responding in necessarily the most intelligent way. They're not necessarily uh, thinking with a lot of forethought. Um, I mean, and I, I wondered how you see that. And uh, is Putin, I mean, it's one thing to take on small countries like, um, you know, uh, Chechnya. <laughs> it's it's one thing to take on small countries like Chechnya. It's another thing to take on Ukraine. And it's another thing to send away your nuclear weapons to Belarus. I mean, uh, yeah, where do you a, think there this was a tactical Putin? deployment? Yeah, yeah, right. Tactical deployment of his own demise. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> what do you think about, you know, Putin's capabilities and what we've learned? Well, I think just the whole uh, invasion of Ukraine was uh, showed real stupidity. Was, he really thought that uh, he'd be welcomed by all right-thinking Ukrainians because, of course, they're really Russians and they know it. Uh, and this didn't happen. Uh, and then, of course, he continued on with the conflict. So, yeah, I think that um, up until up until then, he had been pretty careful. He chose conflicts either that he could win quickly or that he could, he had help. You could, you know, outsource you know, the Chechen conflict to Kadyrov and his guys in Syria, you know, as the Iranians and their Hezbollah allies that are you know, carrying a lot of the, the, the burden of uh, defending Assad. Um, Georgia was just so little. Uh, and of course, his success in Crimea uh, was just so, you know, over and done. Uh, and I think that he had the idea that, um, yeah, it would be just as easy as lightning strike before anyone could respond. And then people would just have to deal just like they had before. And that didn't work. And partly didn't work because he had been successful in the past that people had, um, you know, had prepared. In other words, if he hadn't in 2014 stopped at the Crimea and eastern Ukraine, he just tried to keep on going. Maybe he would have succeeded. But because he was successful then, in other words, the Ukrainians and uh, even the West, to a certain degree, were preparing for something to occur again. And he had a real fight on his hands, and he's not been able to conclude it successfully. That makes me just wonder, the next question for me is, why does history repeat itself? (laughs) Well, you know, um, it's, uh, uh, I think this guy's in a bubble. And he basically he has surrounded himself with people who tell him exactly what he wants to hear 
And anyone who tells him different has long ago been uh, excluded from this circle uh, at, at best. So um, anything he thinks, uh, he, he's in an echo chamber. And I think that um, it was divorced from reality. Very much, I think, like Saddam Hussein was uh, mm-hmm. in Kuwait. You know, people who, who uh, sort of knew about that system indicated the same thing. In other words, he was just so convinced of his own strength and his adversary's weakness that he he operated on that basis. I think similar with Putin, uh, he, he did the same thing. And he ultimately is hoping that, you know, the West will be uh, divided and will crack, will back down. Maybe Trump will come back into office. Um, of course, he's assuming that even if that happens, that Trump could could actually change the policy um so it's um uh, he he just basically you know he he listens to what he wants to hear and um now i think it's getting harder though in other words that that he's not just facing war with ukraine he's facing you know can he trust his own security services at home that's a far more important problem uh and i i think one that's not going to be going away I think one of my biggest takeaways from le- like learning about European history, looking at hundreds and hundreds of years, is that if you exile someone at the head of a mercenary army instead of killing them, um, you're going to have to fight them again later. <coughs> like it always comes back up every single time. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the you know, and I think the, one of the really shocking things was those images of Prigozhin and Rostov, and people were cheering him. People, you know, were liking that. I think is a real threat. Something maybe that Prigozhin himself hadn't really uh, anticipated that that uh, ordinary Russians would see him as somehow being heroic. Uh, and this has got to this might give him ambition, which I think is going to make it necessary for Putin to get rid of him uh, sooner rather than later. Because yeah, if uh, if he's allowed to to thrive. Uh, who knows? And and remember Lukashenko himself, you know, when this union treaty was signed in the 1990s, his idea was that, well, you know, uh, Russia, Belarus are in this union. Yeltsin's so unpopular that he, Lukashenko, would be the guy taking over. He would be, was disabused of that under Putin. Who knows? Maybe this guy, uh, Lukashenko, sees this as ultimately the gambit. In other words, that there'll be a lot of people in Russia who, absent any other uh, candidate, maybe Lukashenko could be the you know the saint who comes in from the West uh, and uh, can run everything. And that uh, you know these guys, I think, have outsized egos. So I would not be surprised if Lukashenko and uh, Prigozhin together you know, think of something like this. <laughs> but it's funny the idea of cheering uh, Prigozhin. I mean, of all the people to cheer, um, I mean, this is not a particularly nice guy. <laughs> He's not likely to restore freedom to Russia or democracy. I mean, it does that just show how much people are tired of Putin? I mean, that well, anybody looks good? I think that part of it was that, you know, who did Prigozhin rely on as his fighters? Prisoners. In other words, not conscripts, not draftees. Not not my boy, not, you know, uh, it was, you know, these people who are no good anyway. Uh, so I think that that was something that a lot of Russians were happy about. Yeah, 
Prigozhin and the prisoners want to fight, that means we don't have to fight. And that's the thing that I think that is Putin's real weakness is that, um, you know, with everyone who fled at the, at the sign of the, uh, you know, conscription uh, last year, that there really isn't uh, deep-seated support for this war. Not that they necessarily oppose it, but they don't want to make any sacrifices for it. That's for sure. And I think that Prigozhin offered people an alternative. Yeah, here's a guy who who carry on the fight, but not at our expense. Um, and that, of course, with Prigozhin gone, you know, is that option still there? Now, of course, the defense ministry is now supposedly recruiting within prisons. But I think what the real fear is that, well, if there are not enough of Wagner volunteers, are they going to start conscripting people in Russia at some point? And that, I think, will be a very dangerous moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can we zoom out and talk about um, what it was like to do your job on Friday as all of this is playing out? Did you have a sense that you were watching a historical moment akin to like 1991? What were your feelings at the time? You know, it, it very much reminded me of the late Gorbachev years when anything you wrote today, because, you know, just became outdated tomorrow. Uh, and it, that this, the sense of possibilities are now far more open. You know, I had been studying the Soviet Union for the longest time, and not that much really changed. In other words, you had, yes, yeah, some leaders changed, whatever, but that, you know, whether it's their foreign policy, domestic policies, everything changed, or everything stayed the same. And then, you know, when Gorbachev came in and said he was going to change things, well, every previous leader had said that too. So it was very hard to believe. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, then suddenly things did start to change and change an awful lot. Late Gorbachev, early Yeltsin. But then they kind of went back to um, sort of the old predictable ways. And certainly under Putin, um, that was the case. Now, you know, Putin is not announcing any kind of change, that's for sure. Uh, but the fact that this happened, yeah, it, it, what it shows is that um, just as in the late Cold War period, Russia is not as stable a place as it once was, and that anything can happen, that a new leadership could come to power, which could very well uh, see its interests uh, change. You know, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a democratic revolution. Putin seems to have 
um, inoculated <laughs> Russia against that with these security services. But of course, in other democratic revolutions, it's security service defection is one of the key elements that is occurring. That that is a possibility. But even another authoritarian leader could just decide to reverse course. In other words, that that uh, you know the war in Ukraine is hurting Russia. Let's let's put an end to this and blame it all on Putin. Uh, that and that would be popular, probably. That would be a popular position. Um, and that and that. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of Western countries who would be very happy to work with such an authoritarian Russian leader, a, you know, a reasonable authoritarian, you know, authoritarian modernizer, practical, pragmatic. We definitely work with such an actor, might even pressure Ukraine to make some concessions, you know, for, for the greater good. Uh, so, you know, I think that there there are now possibilities that we just haven't seen uh, until recently. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll come to fruition, but maybe not. <laughs> no, but that's actually seems like such a good point because there are parts of NATO that really are not happy with what's, you know, the stance towards Russia. I mean, they're on board, but they're sort of barely on board. You have Hungary, you have uh, the election in Slovakia, which I think happened over the weekend as well. Um, I mean, it, Anyway, I'm just saying it makes sense. I mean, the alliance is sort of right. barely holding on as is. I think German public opinion, in other words, that they, uh, you know, they benefited from American protection, exporting to China, and cheap Russian gas. And they like to get back to that. In other words, if they could get back to having a reasonable Russia, um, that that would be just fine with them and probably a lot of other European countries as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, that, 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 that would actually be uh, very much in Russia's interest to <laughs> see Putin replaced with someone who has been a little more subtle in terms of um, just behaving reassuringly uh, that, that, that people would fall all over themselves. We have to do something to, you know, make, you know we don't want to go back to Putin. We have to, or someone like him, so we have to make concessions to Russia. I think that would be the natural reaction. I can even think of the people who would make such an argument. But <laughs> not to say so here. <laughs> what do you think the next signs would be of a change? Is there anything that people should be looking for? Well, I think that um, you know, part of it's going to be is that how do they shore up the, the Ukrainian front? In other words, where are the uh, are the guys who are going to replace Wagner fighters going to come from? Um, and you know, maybe it's the Wagner fighters themselves who signed this contract. Although, again, I think, you know, I prefer to go to Belarus myself. Um, but that they're going to have to do more to get people in the military. And I think this is not something that's going to be popular. Also, I think that Putin may be tempted to replace uh, a lot of the military leadership. Because I think, you know, the, the post-mortem on this, what, what he's going to go through, it's like, okay, yeah, no one came out and cited with Prigozhin, but who did nothing? Who just stood aside? Those are people that Putin cannot trust. Uh, you know, you leave them in office, I mean, that's almost as bad as letting Prigozhin go. It's, it's worse because they're there in Russia. Uh, on the other hand, who do you replace them with? Is there anyone really more loyal? In other words, can you trust 
can you trust anyone? And so what I would foresee is sort of more intensive uh, purges and, and shuffling in, in the security service leadership, Putin going back to his own, his, his instinct is to play them off against each other, you know, to make sure that they can't cooperate with each other. Uh, but I think that this is, um, you know, when you're fighting a war, then this means, okay, you want to keep your security services weak for your own internal purposes, but they need to be strong to fight a foreign enemy. You can't do it both ways. <laughs> Either you build them up to fight the foreigners effectively, uh, but then that risks them being strong enough to hurt you internally, or you keep them divided internally, and then that undermines their ability to fight the external enemy. So I, I think this is um, this is a trap he of his own making, which he cannot get out of. You make it sound like it's almost uh, now we're just waiting for the rest of the dominoes to fall. Like this is probably the end of Putin. Uh, it may take a year. It may take two years. Uh, when it happens, it will be shockingly fast, possibly. But it, you make it sound like this is maybe it. Well, I mean, obviously, there's probably a degree of wishful thinking uh, in in all this. This is what you know, I, I mean. It's not just that I think this will happen. It's what I, it's what I want to happen, and that, of course, is always dangerous in terms of uh, analyzing anything. Uh, so. Um, you know, it, it might not. But obviously, at some point, Putin does have to go. What, he's 70 now, which is actually, now that I'm almost 70, it doesn't seem so old. Uh, but <laughs> he you know, he can't stay in that position forever. And, you know, what, what does he do? Um, does he wait to be overthrown? Or does he decide to do a production? Um, Maybe not move to Belarus. That would really be interesting. Uh, maybe to Beijing or uh, <laughs> maybe to Pyongyang. God. Uh, he, <laughs> well, he may be one point, of the world's richest men, right? I mean, there yeah, is some thought that he really to, is. You have to be able to access this wealth. Yeah. yeah. And that, I think, is, is problematic. And wherever you move, you know, your hosts are going to demand a good portion of it. That's for sure. Um, not going to be safe. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, here's a guy who's also worried about self-preservation. Now, he, he has such an enormous ego. He, he, you know, sees his own survival and Russia's survival as basically one and the same. But if he comes to the understanding that he really can't trust anyone, I presume that like Prigozhin, he will want to save himself above anything else. Uh, he may have already been you know, working on this, uh, and there might be some places that would be willing to take him. Uh, you know, just like Lukashenko took uh, Prigozhin, might you know they might find him useful. So, um, or you know, well, supposedly he watches the tape of Gaddafi being killed by the mob, you know, over and over again. If that's really what he is afraid of, then I would think flight would would occur to him as a way to escape from this. Um, now, you know, is is it is it that bad? Has he gotten to this point? I don't know, um, but I think that here's a guy who thinks in worst case terms that uh, 
he has to anticipate that maybe, you know, if he can't trust his own security people, then maybe he needs to make other arrangements. Hmm. It's so hard to picture for me, you know. It is. <laughs> and I imagine, picture yourself in his shoes. <laughs> you, you can't be happy. He can't be happy with the situation he is now in. He really, you know, it, it's uh, nothing's happening that to make him feel better. Uh, it seems to me. Um, yeah. yeah you know, the, you, these kinds of stories always end one way, though, right? Like, very rarely do you get to be Stalin and have everyone so cowed that you die in bed, um, and everyone's afraid to roll you over. You know, if that, that's that what rare. actually happened. If that's what actually happened, <laughs> it was the doctor's plot right there at the end. Uh, maybe, maybe the doctors got him right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like you know, Nicholas the First, who I think is the real uh, model for Putin. Uh, you know, he comes in; he's very successful with his wars, with suppressing you know any domestic opposition. Then he gets himself involved in the Crimean War, and he bites off more than he can chew as he you know he's at war with the Ottoman Empire, which he'd been able to deal with successfully before. And suddenly he's also at war with Britain and France and others. And it all goes, but he does not stop the war. In other words, he has to basically die in office. Then his successor, Alexander II, extracts Russia from this. And that, I think, is, is, a, is a possibility. In other words, that this Putin will keep on doing what he's doing so long as he's alive. Uh, and so the only way to end this war will be to subtract Putin in whatever way, uh, and whether it's to overthrow him, whether he simply dies in bed, or whether he flees. Uh, and if I were Putin, I think I'd know which option I would ultimately prefer. <laughs> or there is if 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 dying in bed doesn't appear to be there is sort of at some point in the future, in the distant future, doesn't seem like it's going to be an option then maybe fleeing <laughs> might be. Well, I mean, the Kremlin has a lot of windows. <laughs> it, it does. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really does. And I think that, uh, yeah, he, he, I think this episode more than anything else has has let Putin understand that he cannot completely trust his own security services and that they are, and there's no one else, you know, he could act to save, um, you know, the leader of Kazakhstan. He could act to help Lukashenko, but there's no one who can help him. And I don't think the Chinese are going to be sending troops to Moscow to <laughs> protect Putin. Uh, so he he's on his own uh, now. You know, the real uh, I think the real worry is that uh, basically he decides to unleash Armageddon. Certainly. I understand that he once said, and what's interesting, in the past, a lot of my Russian students have said, without Russia, the world need not continue. That there is this idea that if if Russia isn't going to be successful, well, then there's just no reason for the world to even exist. Uh, and you know, would he unleash some kind of Armageddon? Now, the trouble, of course, is doing this is that, um, you know, you don't survive yourself, that's for sure. Um, and you also have to then, like, will the people you give the order to uh, actually obey, you know, just as you were talking about earlier, 
you know, people didn't obey uh, the orders to move against Yeltsin back in 1991. Uh, can he be sure that such an order, a terrible thing, in other words, that if you obey it, you're, you're probably going to be dead within, you know, an hour uh, yeah. because of what you've unleashed. So why do it? Uh, so uh, even if he wants to, you know, let everyone die <laughs> strategy, it's not clear that he can rely on his own people to, to uh, uh, unleash this. I'd just say this is the perfect note. Uh, I mean, unless, Matthew, you have something else. We like to no, go out on like a downer. To, yeah, we like to go out on a downer. So talking about nuclear war, the destruction of all life on the planet. Oh, right. Well, that's the uh, guys after my own heart. That's, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I believe in the power of pessimism. <laughs> it doesn't tend to lead you astray. I've that's found. right. Yeah, that's that, that's the one optimistic thing about being a pessimist is that is that uh, you're rarely disappointed. <laughs> and you're usually prepared. That's right. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, Mark Katz, thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through what we know. Is, I mean, boy, is it complex. It is indeed. All right. Well, that's great being with you guys and uh, really appreciate your inviting me onto the, onto the show. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.